Good evening. It could not possibly surprise any of you that when this room was designed, the architect's plan said storeroom. <laughs> it was designed just, it was designed six weeks before the media revolution hit. And there isn't very much to be said for it. I hope that uh, you like the posts. <laughs> Those of you who are having class on the third floor in particular, the uh, course in the history of the book is directly above this. Welcome to the second lecture of week one of Rare Book School. I'll be speaking tomorrow night in the Rotunda at six o'clock. Our speaker this evening has lectured to the Friends of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School uh, almost too many times to count. It's always uh, a great pleasure to hear Sue Allen speak on really anything. But uh, this evening we get the bookbinding designs of Sarah Wyman Whitman, Sue Allen. Thank you. In Boston, in the 1880s and 1890s, there appeared a group of book covers of extraordinary beauty and distinction, flat plant forms stamped onto plain book cloths combined with a simple, artless style of lettering made them markedly different from other such work. They were issued by the publisher Houghton Mifflin. These covers command the respect and admiration of designers and collectors today. They were the work of Sarah Wyman Whitman. She lived in this house, the one on the left, on Beacon Hill, 77 Mount Vernon Street, now owned by the Club of Odd Volumes. A plaque recently affixed to the fence reads Sarah Wyman Whitman, 1842-1904, stained glass artist, book designer, writer, and teacher, lived here 1880-1904, and these were the very years in which she designed her book covers. A wealthy woman, the wife of a successful wool merchant, she entertained in this house, knew all the creative people in Boston, and this was the world of Henry and William James, Mrs. Jack Gardner, Daniel Berkeley Updike, Augustus St. Gaudens. She had a talent for friendship. Her social letters were collected and published after her death. A sampling from the 1880s, five portraits on hand just now. Daily life runs on, men and books, and classes and committees, poets and learned ladies. Windows not so far advanced as planned. A few blocks from her house at 4 Park Street, next to the Park Street Church and fronting on Boston Common, 
where the offices of Houghton Mifflin, one of the most successful literary publishers in the world. The firm held copyrights to many of the most important authors of that time, Longfellow, Whittier, Thoreau, Mrs. Stowe. The inside view is of the reception room and main office. For any art to flourish, there must be two principles, someone who wants the work and someone who can create it. George Mifflin, the publisher, needed the services of an artist. The philosophy of the house as to book covers had always been simplicity. As a binder in 1864, Henry Houghton urged covers as plain and simple as the dress of a Quaker maiden. In the 1870s, this was amended to simplicity without barrenness. <laughs> now, in the 1880s, it must be simplicity with smartness. A sudden taste change, propelled by the teachings of Ruskin and William Morris, was making outmoded the covers put together by engraver and binder. The publisher needed a person trained in color and composition. The situation was summed up in a trade journal headline, The Commercial Value of Good Taste. Good taste he would find in Sarah Whitman. I estimate Sarah Whitman made about 300 covers. She began her cover designing to oblige a few author friends. Her ability to think largely gained from her painting experience and her calmness in the face of details and deadlines made her an ideal designer. We have her covers, but even more important for book history we have an unprecedented amount of surrounding material, nearly 100 business letters between her and George Mifflin, then the bindery and author files of Houghton Mifflin, her own writings on book covers, some of the stamping brasses for her covers, the printed precepts of her painting teacher, more material than exists for any other cover designer of her time. On white cloth, we see the corner of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's 1865 cover for Swinburne's Atalanta in Caledon, a Greek coin stamped in gold. For his own poems in 1870, Rossetti designed the navy blue cover on the left with square blocks in gold. The cover on the, well, the cover with the, um, <laughs> he made in 1871 for another Swinburne volume. The daringly smart, simple style of these covers had a great influence on Sarah Whitman's work. In 1880, Sarah Whitman designed the cover for Susan Coolidge's A Few, v a Few Verses, 
I show its very similar sequel, a few more verses of 1889. The asymmetrical placement of her overlapping coins is very indebted to the Rossetti covers. The cover to John Burroughs' Fresh Fields of 1884, the first of the business letters, is concerned with this book. My dear Mr. Mifflin, I was obliged to go to New York unexpectedly about a minute after getting your note, and I have done the best I could. But you see, very roughly. I think there is no doubt, though, that these colors are the ones to use for a book of this import, and the little buttercup and letters to be printed in dark green or in gold in the light green field. I return immediately and can draw these more nicely by Wednesday if you have anything to criticize. Yours faithfully, S.W. Whitman. If there is time, let me draw the flower again. I can do it better. All her character and personality are packed into this first letter, the hurry, the ardor, and wish to do her best, her serious study of color. In general, an immense feeling of hurry pervades the letters, flying to the studio to get your proofs. I have just time to catch the mail. Telegrams are requested, express mail sent. The turnaround time between sketch and stamped cover impressed me, sometimes as little as six days, which would be creditable in today's computer and fax world. I compare her buttercup to the one in Rudolf Koch's Blumenbuch of 1929. Fresh Fields. This is a layout she used many times, the upthrust, stylized flower with lettering linked to the picture. Over the years, her work remained essentially the same. She moved from this aesthetic period, Kate Greenaway-like browns and greens, to brighter, lighter colors. Her lettering became more assured, but yet she had settled right here her style of boldness and simplicity. Her purpose was already formed. On the right, a buttercup for the cover of the collected writings, which came out in a number of volumes as the Riverside edition. This is John Burroughs, the much-loved nature writer. He knew Henry Ford. He was at home to everyone. I show Across Lots, a cover done for Horace Lunt in 1889, close in style and time to Fresh Fields, and it gives us an opportunity to see what she delivered to the publisher. This is a finished drawing made available to this trade journal, The American Bookmaker, March 1889. When stamped in color on a book cloth, it's hard to get an idea of just what she did. And we have the word of George Mifflin when he was asked to include such art in an exhibition that the press did not regularly save such drawings. So this is a valuable piece to study. 
We know she used swan quill pens. She was a good draftsman. She made this drawing very rapidly. She followed the precepts of her painting teacher, get it down and don't niggle. <laughs> You'll only weaken it if you work it over. Use your first idea. You'll never get a better one. Photo engraving, the technological change that came in the 1870s, allowed such an artist's drawing to be reproduced directly without the intervention of an interpretive engraver. My Lady Pocahontas, writ by Annas Todkill with notes by John Eston Cook, 1885, a reviewer described this cover, done up as she is in quaintest English and quaintest binding, be roughed and be gloved. Sarah Whitman wrote to the publisher, I don't like the texture or the color of the buckram over much. That dark, coarse gray linen Scribner's used for one of their books two years ago was better. Would you send me a little lot of samples of cloths? Six times in the letters she asks for cloth samples. Once she mentions a maker, Holliston. The little flowers are tobacco plants. This portrait of Sarah Whitman was made by her friend, her painter friend, Helen Bigelow Merriman. It is now in the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe. There is a lot to see in the portrait, her eager, somewhat hesitant face. What is important to us is her dress with its buttons, a sparkling diamond belt, her cloak. She holds a painter's palette. The little decoration on her dress looks handmade. A friend described her way of dressing as fantastical. Everything she wore was harmoniously distinctive, if not original. Ostrich feathers, beaver bonnets, marvelous fans, and arresting shades of silk or satin, capriciously but unerringly chosen. This intense interest in cloth, color, and texture was an important asset in her cover designing. The Old Garden by Margaret Deland, 1886 on the left, the 1888 version on the right. Among the business letters are two scraps of cloth, not book cloth, but printed dress goods. She describes how they could be obtained at White's, a department store and would do for such a book as this if it were reprinted. So we gain a picture of her scouring the shops of Boston for non-book cloths, as well as looking at true book cloth samples, critiquing them. This is not my idea of a good texture. Books like this are worth looking at in different libraries. The same cloth was not always consistently used throughout an, ed an edition. These two cloths are printed dress cloths. 
I show on the left a section of the back of Brampton Sketches by Mary Claflin, 1890, another of Sarah Whitman's designs using non-book cloth. This is a woven pattern, a beautiful and expensive piece of fabric. On the right, Daffodils by Adeline Whitney, 1887. This is a charming example of the style we have been seeing now called a three-piece style, one piece of cloth for the spine and one each for front and back. The three-piece style is a mark of her 80s books. We see it today on novels with a cloth spine and paper sides. She would often ask, can I have two cloths or one? The cost to the purchaser of this book was $1.25. She had a little arsenal of touches that gave added distinction to the three-piece covers, many of them borrowed from hand-binding traditions. On the left, she runs a little gold line of fleur-de-lis up the white spine piece beside a blue patterned cloth. On the right, on a red leather spine, she runs a vine stamped in blind beside the tan paper side of an 1888 book. She often designed in a very broad way, starting with the cloth. I think for a book of poems, the green cloth, or the red one, would be rather nice, with a back of smooth, cream-colored, almost white cloth, with no design, or almost none, perhaps the name running lengthwise along the edge, where the two colors meet. I fancy this might look well. Jack the Fisherman by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, 1887. After some hesitation, red, no, at the last minute, blue, she selected this blue cartridge paper, which is an inferior kind of drawing paper whose roughness would appeal to her. She wrote to Mifflin, Jack, I really think is pretty nice, and I want to ask you if you are going to publish a series of short stories in this form, because if you are, I have an idea that they might be in different colors of this cartridge paper, each with its own slight design, and be quite charming. What do you think of this? No other such covers appeared. <laughs> There are many, many references in the business letters to the subject of lettering. I am very vexed to have left off the bar at the top of the A. Is there any way this can be remedied? I have sat up late doing all those terrible titles. Again, I will gladly bend myself to the lettering. And again, have you seen Scribner's latest titles? Our letters and every letter wrong. <laughs> so proprietary she felt, as if her lettering was copyright, and indeed it formed one of the most distinctive features of her work. I have sketched on the right the key letters that define her alphabets, what was called her rustic alphabet on the top, and her formal or inscriptional below. The two 
styles could meld into each other at times. She used the rustic more frequently than the inscriptional. The key letters to look for, and they are a real index as to whether a cover is her work or not, are the A surmounted by a bar, the D left open at the bottom, the E with the rounded back, the G with incurved spiral, the S that trails. These letters she drew rapidly in a single stroke with a quill pen. The inscriptional letters would have been drawn against a straight edge. She and George Mifflin were in perfect agreement in their dislike of the exaggerated Victorian lettering styles. In another context, she wrote, a new and fanciful letter is sometimes an aesthetic crime. It gives one a spasm of pain. It can be so dreadful. <laughs> On her book spines, we should notice, as one of her little quirks, how some of them show the separating of title and author by a decorative flower. Heart's Ease and Rue by James Russell Lowell, 1888, an extremely beautiful cover. George Mifflin writes to Sarah Whitman, really, the book to me, so far as your part of the work goes, seems as nearly perfect as we can expect to have anything in the way of a cover. I am simply fascinated with it. Faithfully yours, George H. Mifflin. We send Mr. Lowell his copy this afternoon. If he don't like it, well, I hesitate to say what I shall think of him. <laughs> Another of her little touches from the world of hand binding, tips as they are called, the little white cloth corners were put on by hand, giving an added delicacy to the blue paper sides. Notice how beautiful the stamping is, pressed down into the paper. James Russell Lowell's most famous work, The Vision of Sir Lanfall. We see it here <clears throat> in brown cloth, stamped in black and gold, 1887. One year later, in 1888, a folio deluxe edition was issued with Sarah Whitman's cover. On the left, a detail of this 1888 edition, and on the right, a detail from a smaller, more popular edition of 1890. On the tan cover, the grapevine drawing is really pleasing but we would call it dated, a period piece of rendering. On the red cover, we see her mature style of the 90s, vigorous, modern, timeless. <coughs> Egypt by Martin Brimmer, 1892. By all odds, Egypt is her most distinguished cover. The book was written by her Beacon Hill neighbor, Martin Brimmer, the first president of the Museum of Fine Arts, shown in a portrait bust by Augustus St. Gardens, 
done in 1896 after his death for his widow. The book was advertised as an octavo. It measures six and a half by 10 inches, full leather, $5, full vellum, $6. The cost included heliogravure illustrations. The spine has a little suggestion of hinges and gold stitching goes around all the outer covers. But what holds the eye is the papyrus emblem with the word Egypt integrated into the stocks. Looking for parallels in Egyptian art, I find a 1250 BC stone bas-relief, a serving maid grasps an ibex in one hand, a piece of cloth over her arm, and holds three papyrus stalks. The wall painting on the right shows a woman holding a jar in one hand. There are lovely details of jewelry, earring, bracelets, collar, and again, she holds three papyrus stalks, the taller one in the center, all resembling Sarah Whitman's emblem. She drew the lettering on the title page, the word Egypt, in her inscriptional style, very much as on her cover and underneath, three essays on the history, religion, and art of ancient Egypt. Just following the list of illustrations is a color-printed map drawn by Sarah Whitman. She designed the inner pages of this book. It shows the Nile River flowing out to the sea at the delta, the marshy area where papyrus grew. Her, let her lettering Egypt goes across the river and we begin to see that she is thinking of more than the papyrus symbol. She's merging it into the shape of Egypt's important delta region. So we see a doubled power in her impressive cover. And now I want to show some comparisons of her work in other media with her covers. This stained glass window is held at the Boston Athenaeum. Echoing it in style is Lucy Larkham's At the Beautiful Gate, 1892, the same almond shape and lettering placed high. A binder's stamping brass and its detail for The Open Door by Blanche Willis Howard, 1889. Sarah Whitman has a lot to say in the business letters about the brasses or metal dies, as they were called. Let it be cut richly to stamp well. Again, a stamp had been cut too deeply, she warns. Again, the gold is too shiny. Can nothing be done to glaze or soften it? We see the detail from the brass as it appears stamped on the book. We see in the center two hearts surrounded by curling flowers. When we look up to the top of the Trinity Church Parish House windows she designed in 1896, 
we see the same motif above the colored gla glass wreaths. The wreath was a favorite device on her book covers, particularly for memorial editions of well-known authors. On the left, 1887, wait, I'm sorry, no. Returning to her stained glass wreath, it was a time of wreaths. On the right, and not her work, is a delicate carved marble wreath below the famous St. Gaudens bronze memorial to Colonel Shaw and the Black Regiment of 1897 opposite the State House on the edge of Boston Common. Now, the wreath was a favorite device on her book covers, particularly for memorial editions of well-known authors. On the left, 1887. On the right, an upturned wreath of 1894. A delicate wreath for Memories of Hawthorne by his daughter, Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, 1898, and the stamping brass for the wreath. A little wreath for Julia Ward Howes from Sunset Ridge, Poems Old and New, 1898. The book opens with the Battle Hymn of the Republic. On the right, Venetian Life by William Dean Howells, 1892, a formal bound wreath. If we were to open this book, we would find a surprise. This is her patterned end paper used in the 1890s. Flower heads on a background of little curls printed in gold ink. It was clearly modeled on Rossetti's end paper for his own book of poems of 1870. She used it sparingly and choicely in only a few books. This passionate Rossetti drawing of a woman bidding farewell to a knight with a sword slung around his waist is from a drawing on a zinc plate by D.G. Rossetti intended for the title page of the early Italian poets, 1861, Margaret Deland in 1893. It seems a rather startling copying even to the little flower block in the upper left. She took what she needed from many sources to gain an effect. She was not aiming for originality. We look again at her stained glass window, this time focusing on the background pattern of little hearts. And on the right, Hawthorne's Marble Fawn of 1889, a deluxe edition on vellum. The three blocks, each with a large iris flower, are laid out in the style of Rossetti's own poems of 1870 that we saw earlier. This single block of the gold flower is set against the little background of hearts and fleur-de-lis rendered in Rossetti fashion 
alongside the stamping brass for the block. A final Rossetti illusion is the delicately patterned background of circles and crosses in Two Worlds by Richard Watson Gilder, 1891. In the Garden of Dreams by Louise Chandler Moulton, 1890, one of her best covers, the languid poppies droop over the title into which one leaf has fallen. I compare this with a Rookwood pottery vase with somewhat similar poppies. Rookwood was America's leading art pottery, 1880-1902. I'm not saying that one was taken from the other, but we get a sense of what was in the air in that arts and crafts decade. Similarly with A Rambler's Lease by Bradford Tarry, 1889, I compare a Tiffany hammered silver coffee pot of 1878. We see on each artistically disposed grapevines and leaves with little curling tendrils. The disposition of the plant moves away from Sarah Whitman's usual upright approach and it did not meet with George Mifflin's approval. She writes, tell Mr. Mifflin that I don't mind the least in the world his not fancying the Rambler's cover, but tell him also I have to stand up for it and think the public would like it better than he thinks they would. It should be printed in a much lighter shade on the light cloth, and then it would look like the shadow of a grapevine as it is. I thought the character of the book gave a chance for something less restrained just for once. Along with all this justification, I meekly send the scheme for lettering alone, but I think the others best. But of course, it's not much moment, and all right, whichever way Mr. Mifflin thinks. One copy has been seen with no stamping at all on the front cover just gilt lettering on the spine. Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner, 1897, a similarly free layout. The lettering and its positioning are outstanding. In this case, the design continues around the back of the book. On the left, an example of her time-saving where she used the same decorative ornament on a brown leather book and on a yellow cloth book. On the right, Religio Pictoris by Helen Bigelow Merriman, 1899. This is the woman who made her portraits. Sarah Whitman, in turn, does a cover for the Merriman book with a gold border stamped on leather. A hasp on leather and two hasps on a dark gray cloth of 1893. The use of this hasp motif was another of her trademark quirks. On the left, another John Burroughs volume, A Year in the Fields, 1896. 
on the right, The Ride to the Lady by Helen Gray Cohn, 1891. She uses similar teardrop shapes to form her design. The one on the right is surrounded by a very nice frame. Little scribbly drawings appear in the frame. A fish in the lower right, perhaps drawn from medieval work. These two covers show another one of her characteristic touches, an embracing gesture linking elements of the lettering. On the left, a golden gossip by Adeline Whitney, 1892, on the right, Three Tales by William Douglas O'Connor, 1892. This embracing and closing gesture is characteristic of her social personality. These books cost, respectively, $150 and $125. Most of the books for which she did covers fall into this price range. What was she paid for her cover designs? Houghton Mifflin's rate was a little lower than many publishers, a modest 10 to $25 a cover. As a wealthy woman, the money was unimportant to her. Once, being asked to present her bill, she wrote, I have lost my list and have no idea where I stand. Won't someone at the press know? <laughs> Out of the East by Lafcadio Hearn, 1895, silver color on yellow cloth. Her rendition in stamping of the traditional sewn spine of the Japanese book. One of her little touches to watch for are what I call thumb prints, square or rounded or triangular little corner spots. And another Japanese subject, The Soul of the Far East by Percival Lowell, 1888, a yellow-orange stamped on white cloth. The disposition of the three illustrations based on the early Rossetti cover, the lettering handled well. Percival Lowell once advised her to drop everything and go to Japan. If you saw a Japanese book, it would change everything in your designs. By this time, 1895, the three-piece cover is seldom used. She turns her attention, rather than running a design edge beside the second cloth, to outer borders. On the left, we see two examples of her gold borders on green cloths. With very little variation, she creates for each a different and elegant effect. On the right, a corner of At the Beautiful Gate we saw earlier of 1892 to show the amount of heavy sizing, starch, and white pigment given by the book cloth finisher to produce the smooth vellum-like surface that designers loved to work with. There's much discussion in the letters of white cloth. He said, if I felt I must use white cloth on the marble fawn, I could. Or, no white desired by me for once. Or, with my accustomed depravity, I ask for white. <laughs> to the publisher, white was not so desirable. 
One trade journal spoke scornfully of the effect on a warm day of moist fingers on the heavily sized club. A Cincinnati bookstore sent an open letter to publishers, do not send us white books. They may do well in the eastern cities, but we in the gritty cities can't show them, can't sell them. They are immediately covered with coal dust. Perhaps the last word on white book cloth would be Rossetti's. Confronted many years earlier with the problem, they must keep it clean or not as they like. An Island Garden by Celia Thaxter, 1894. This stunning cover is much admired. It was offered in gold on white or gold on green. Celia Thaxter wrote a note to Sarah Whitman. I send you much love and many a thought and wish that I could put half the things into this letter that you would like to read and I to write but you must take this leaf of bay instead. Now two more masterpieces, Henry David Thoreau's Cape Cod with Sarah Whitman's cover of 1896. Volume two carries on its opening pages a watercolor by Amelia Watson as of a pressed flower. One reviewer remarked politely, another beautiful cover from Houghton Mifflin. A more forthright reviewer described it as a meager arrangement of three unknown plants. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to suggest they are milkweeds. One year later, in 1897, she made this remarkable cover for the reissue of Thoreau's Walden. Six broad, flat leaves with thumbprint touches on the corners. The detail shows how beautiful the rich, flat gold appears on one of the heavy, sateen-like cloths used in the late 90s. The brass is existing for the Walden stamping. We see the long leaf with the little nodules. The Walden repeats the design on front and back covers. And now on the right, if we take one of the meager plants from Cape Cod and turn it sideways, we see its resemblance to the Walden. And I believe both represent milkweed. The Starlight Calendar, edited by Kate Sanborn, 1899, in a letter, Sarah Whitman tells George Mifflin, the blue is all wrong for the starlight calendar. A remarkable fact that emerges from the letters is the amount of control she had at the proofing stage. She was sent proofs of the brass stamped on cloth, often on several cloths. How habitual this was is shown in one startled letter when she says she has not received proofs, or are they coming out without my seeing them? At this stage, she could change book cloth or stamping color. 
On the right, the rainbow calendar. In these collections of inspirational readings, Houghton Mifflin was able to rearrange and reissue its existing literary properties. As we come into the later years, she made fewer and fewer designs. The Son of the Wolf by Jack London, 1900, silver stamping on charcoal gray cloth. A broad belt carries the lettering and her thumbprints are in the corners. I really don't like this cover. It's unlike most of her work. It has a cold method style of designing. On the left, The Martyr's Idol by the poet Louise Imogen Guiney, 1899, one of Sarah Whitman's most beautiful covers. She was sincerely religious. She taught Sunday school for 30 years, was an active, devoted churchgoer, taking part in the Trinity Church fairs, so that the symbols were truly meaningful to her. On the right, The Supply at St. Agatha's by Elizabeth Stewart Phelps, 1896, a gold cross on green sateen cloth. George Mifflin to the author, I hope you will like the appearance of St. Agatha's. We have taken special pains with the get-up. I think Mrs. Whitman never made a more simple and artistic cover design. The Light of the World by Herbert D. Ward, 1901. This cover, made for the husband of the author of the St. Agatha we just saw, is another exceptional design in the form of a cross. Again, the way the cross reaches out to the edges of the book cover, the enclosing within a circle of the brilliant silver star. The image is so powerful, you feel no one else in the world but Sarah Whitman could have done it. We come to the end of the chronological showing of her covers, but when there is an opportunity to read a group of letters, such as the business letters, one hopes that some bookish secrets and revelations may come out. They did. And I have four little stories to share with you. Sarah Orne Jewett and her living room in South Berwick, Maine, a house open to the public. We see the warm details of wallpaper and on the piano, two vases, a bust of George Washington. In the place of honor, the Merriman portrait drawing of Sarah Whitman. The two Sarahs were devoted friends. From at least 1883, when Sarah Whitman wrote her about a cover, yes, dear, it does look well. Sarah Orne Jewett edited the social letters that came out after Sarah Whitman's death. Over the years, there were many exchanges of tokens, letters, messages. Sarah Orne Jewett was a serious writer, a doctor's daughter. She knew the country people well. After the Civil War, when tourists began visiting Maine, she saw how they laughed at and undervalued the simple country people they saw. She made it her mission to show the true worth of these people. 
Disciplining and developing herself as a writer, she produced work of classic quality. For most of her books, Sarah Whitman designed the covers. The King of Folly Island, 1888. I love this cover. I think it's one of Sarah Whitman's best works. It's made in the three-piece mode of the 80s. It makes us think back to the buttercup with the same layout, the upthrust plant and lettering grouped near it. The colors here are lovely, the plant brilliantly schematized with little spiky blossoms at the top. Betty Lester by Sarah Orne Jewett, 1890. About this cover, letters flew back and forth. The author writes to the publisher, with your permission, I will say a word to Mrs. Whitman about the cover. Then Sarah Whitman tells George Mifflin, Miss Jewett wants it young. It was a book for girls. What say you to red and white? And she asks for a brighter red when she sees the sample. The plant is a chrysanthemum, and for the first time in her book cover career, she signs her initials in a heart at the base of the chrysanthemum stem. Sarah Whitman signed only eight of her covers, and four of the eight were on Sarah Orne Jewett books. We step back some years to 1877 when Sarah Orne Jewett's first book, Deep Haven, came out, published by James Osgood. The poet Whittier had recommended she publish her articles that had appeared in the Atlantic as a book. This cover precedes Sarah Whitman's work, and indeed, we can look back and appreciate here what we're losing in the later, more sophisticated mode, the rich, warm, realistically rendered cattails. Deep Haven was a popular book. It was reissued in 1893 as a holiday edition with cover by Sarah Whitman. This is the newer, smarter Deep Haven a three-piece cover, a white back, and green sides stamped in silver. The lettering is enclosed in Renaissance-style labels. Strings of flowers are made into a pattern. But there's something more about it. Sarah Whitman, in a letter to the author, announces, I have now decided that with your leave, the motif of all SOJ covers must have the Mayflower involved in one way or another. And these are individual Mayflower blossoms shown front and profile. And we do find the Mayflower on all her following covers except the last one which Sarah Whitman did not make. On A Native of Winby in 1893, she draws a realistic clump with roots enclosing the author's name. And for her most famous book, The Country of the Pointed Furs, 1896, three clumps ending in Art Nouveau-style hearts, the middle flowers flattened to echo the lettering.
the mayflower or trailing arbutus. These early blooming flowers were found by homesick pilgrims in rocky areas under winter leaves. The shy, sturdy flowers were considered a fitting symbol for Sarah Orne Jewett's tenacious spirit. Comparing the stamping on the native of Winby, we see she closely followed the front and profile views of these small five-petaled flowers. She omitted the broad, flat leaves, but we might notice them. The native of Winby is a wonderful story. I urge anyone who has not read it to read it. It's a short story. It doesn't take long to read. The opening sentence goes, on the teacher's desk in the little roadside schoolhouse, there was a bunch of mayflowers beside a brass bell, a dictionary, and a worn Bible. Betty Lester's Christmas was written in 1899, nine years after the first Betty Lester book. The first sentence in the Christmas book makes a bow to the cover designer. Betty Lester lived in a small square book bound in red and white. For the Christmas cover, Sarah Whitman drew a wreath in an illustrational style, clusters of pink mayflowers and buds, and here includes the broad leaves. The cover is a simple design printed on white cloth, the wreath at the top, the author's name in outline letters at the bottom, and under that, Sarah Whitman drew her SW initials in a little locket. In 1896, the firm decided to issue the writings of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Sarah Whitman prepared a cover, and George Mifflin writes her a letter about it. His essential message is that he doesn't like the cover and wishes she would do it over. But his letter is a masterpiece of tact and diplomacy, so revealing of their relationship that I will read part of it. He begins by praising her design of three years earlier for a native of Winby. This cover for a native of Winby has, I confess, always had a peculiar fascination for me. I never see the book lying around that I am not drawn to it by the cover design. And it seems to me that that design will last and wear as well as anything you have ever done on a simple book. No artist on earth could resist this. But somehow or other, on the Mrs. Stowe, while I recognize a similar idea in the treatment, I do not find myself so much drawn to the design as a whole. When I think of its being stamped on 16 volumes and being retained for many years, I wonder whether you could not improve upon it, and whether, before we finally begin the stamping, which we shall so shortly do, it would not be wise to reconsider the design and put it more in the form of a tree, as on a native of Winby, with the lettering in the background, as on that. Possibly some new way will suggest itself to you, but somehow or other, I could not bring myself to actually stamp the cover without raising the question to your mind in this way. And in this connection, while I think the gilt line is very effective on the side, 
he means the border that goes around the native of Winby. It is an element of no little cost, especially where it is to be repeated on 16 volumes. <laughs> and I query whether you might not think it possible to have the center in gold and the borderline in blind. Will you kindly consider these two points and drop me a line at 4 Park Street at your convenience? Kate Douglas Wiggin had written a number of books for the firm. She is most famous for Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Her books were amazingly popular. Girls clubs were formed as her new books came out. Not a stylist like Sarah Orne Jewett, she was sure of her market. I may not have as much to say as some writers, but I seem to be able to get people to listen one young admirer wrote her, your books are grand, nearly as good as little women. <laughs> the firm was most anxious to do well by her, the little gold mine, as one member referred to her. Sarah Whitman had made five or six earlier covers for her. This is Timothy's Quest of 1890. Now, in the fall of 1896, the author comes with two books together, wanting covers. A widow for years, she had recently remarried a strong-minded businessman who felt the firm was not treating her fairly and was appalled to find she didn't understand how to read a balance sheet. For these two books, the husband attempts to influence the cover design. Sarah Whitman receives samples of heavily craped paper and finds them excellent for the purpose. However, as to the design, I do not consider Mr. W's suggestions feasible, but I suggest a design as of harp strings with flowers twined in them to be done in white and gold or in gold alone, something like this. This is one of the very few true sketches we have for her cover designs. It appears to have been made with a quill pen. Very occasionally the business letters are stamped as here with the date and time of receipt in the Houghton Mifflin office. The heavy craped paper has aged badly and it is difficult today to find a presentable copy, but the cover went through the stamping process successfully. The author expressed herself quite delighted. However, the other cover for the book with the curious title of Marm Lisa, M-A-R-M, Marm Lisa, was somewhat delayed. Sarah Whitman writes on October 3rd, I hope to send the Mom Lisa cover in a day or two, though I fear, and here again, we see the interfering husband and his suggestions, I fear not in the symbolical shape which his letter indicates. But that, you will, I'm sure, agree is not to be desired. On October 12, George Mifflin writes to the author, I am waiting every mail for the design for the cover from Mrs. Whitman. 
suspense was mounting. On the left, a detail of the successful nine love songs. On the right, the cover as it first appeared of Mom Lisa. Kate Douglas Wigan was disappointed in it. Mifflin confided to his New York agent she wanted something very gay and gaudy, which Mrs. Whitman would never have consented to have done. I think, however, in subsequent binding orders, we shall print the dies so that they will be rather more effective than on the first lot. At the same time, I myself think the cover very fitting and artistic, and it is one that grows on you the more you examine it. The more she examined it, the less the Mom Lisa cover grew on the author. <laughs> and there followed one of the longest and most involved correspondences in the archive. Different cloth color, colors, such as green and yellow, were tried in vain. Alterations were made to the central drawing of angel and child. Mifflin wrote the author in November, since you are still so disappointed with the cover, even with the later changes, we are going to make a last desperate effort and ask a New York cover designer to work out a new design. He closes plaintively, the book you will be glad to know is moving in spite of the cover. We are printing